let y'all get going. Okay, we're out on Facebook Live too, Alan, so we'll have any number of folks joining us. Welcome, friends, to Todd Talks, where my guest today is Dr. Alan Jacobs, Distinguished Professor of Humanities in the Honors Program at Baylor University. Dr. Jacobs came to Baylor back in 2013. He also is a resident fellow in Baylor's Institute for Studies of Religion. Dr. Jacobs taught at Wheaton College before coming to Baylor, and we are absolutely delighted that he is a faculty member at our university. Dr. Jacobs, as you know, is the author of many articles and essays, as well as books. Three of his more recent books are How to Think, The Year of Our Lord, 1943, and then most recently, where I would like to begin our conversation today, Breaking Bread with the Dead, A Reader's Guide to a More Tranquil Mind. Dr. Jacobs, Alan, welcome and thank you for your time. Thank you so much for talking with me, Todd. So, Alan, what prompted you to write your most recently published book, Breaking Bread with the Dead, a title Mm. that owes its origins to a line composed by W.H. Auden? Uh, And what would you like to see uh, in an ideal world this work accomplish? What's the telos, the aim, goal? Yeah, so the... Uh, the thing that first put it in my mind that kind of planted the seed was um, I was uh, I, w- I was reading an interview with a writer named Roxanne Gay, and she's a, um, uh, mainly an essayist. Uh, she's she writes about being black and she writes about being a lesbian. And they were interviewing her and someone asked the interviewer asked her, I think this was in The Guardian uh, in London. Uh, somebody asked her. Uh, so what was the last uh, classic, you know, work of fiction that you read? And she said, I don't really do that. I don't, you know, I don't really read classic works of fiction. I think she was maybe exaggerating a little bit because there's evidence that she does, but she was like, you know, why would I read that? And, and within a day of that, I saw an interview, another interview online, and this was with a engineer who was then at Google. He's since gotten fired from Google and has been sued by Google, but his name was Anthony Lewandowski. And he, he said, look, you know, the only thing I'm interested in is the future. Why would I pay any attention to the past? Why, why would that be of any use to me? Uh, I, you know, I'm focused on making amazing things for the future. And it just struck me that these two people who were so different, uh, one, uh, you know, a white male engineering, uh, you know, STEM guy, and the other, um, a black woman, uh, literary type, both were kind of open about expressing their lack of interest in the past. And I started thinking, what would I say to them? Uh, What would be my because I spend my whole life studying the past, what would I say to them that would, uh, that, that would be of, 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 that might compel them uh, or at least get them thinking? And, uh, and that's really, that, that led me down the, the, this, this kind of train of thought. And ultimately what it got to, to put it in the simplest possible terms, is that we live in a very divided society right now in which people are uh, extremely hostile to one another and free about expressing their hostility. 
And, and a lot of that is and uh, stems from an inability to tolerate or to accept difference. Um, and it's just really hard for people to know that they have neighbors who, who don't vote the way that they vote and who don't have the same views about sexuality or about immigration or about whatever than they have. And I think reading the figures from the past is an incredibly good training in learning to be charitable towards difference. That when you read something from the past and it offends you or disturbs you, that's not your next door neighbor. That's somebody who lived a long time ago. They're, they're, they've gone now. You can set the book down. You can think it over. You can come back to it. And then you maybe can end up saying things like, well, they're wrong about this, but they're right about this other thing. You, you, can, you can practice a kind of discipline of charity and forbearance. And if you learn to do that with the writers and the thinkers from the past, then maybe you can actually practice that on your own neighbors today at some point. Wow, so um, retrieving uh, writings from the past in many ways can help us overcome the, the polarization of the present. So this segues quite nicely, it seems mm -hmm. to me, Alan, uh, to a important question. If, mm -hmm. if we would become skilled, sympathetic readers, mm -hmm. uh, good hermeneutes, yeah. um, what does that require of us? It, it's, mm -hmm. it's certainly more than uh, taking a book and, and, and propping it open and beginning to read. What are some right. of the skills? What are some of the habits of heart and mind mm -hmm. that we need to take mm -hmm. to the task of reading and interpreting? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think that for me, step one, and I wrote a book about this 20 years ago now, um, yeah. um, I think that uh, that, that we should meditate on something that St. Augustine says in his book on Christian teaching, um, where he's talking about reading scripture, uh, but I want to apply it to reading other things as well. Uh, Augustine says that if you read a passage of scripture and you interpret it and you feel that you have got a good grip on it, but you have not read it in such a way that it builds up the love of God and the love of your neighbor, then Augustine says you haven't understood that passage of scripture. You, you may think you have, but you haven't. And, and uh, my, the sort of task I set my, for myself in writing that book, which is called A Theology of Reading, is well, what would that look like if I were reading a novel or I'm reading a newspaper or I'm reading a magazine? Or for that matter, if I'm reading a social media post, what would it look like? Social media didn't exist at the time, but I think it applies. Uh, uh, and what would it mean to read in such a way that I build up the love of God and the love of my neighbor? Uh, that I grow in Christian love as I read. And I think there are several elements to that. One of them is something that I was just talking about that is acknowledging and accepting difference. It's not charitable to someone to say, oh, you and I really agree, even if you think we don't. No, let them have their disagreements, but, but, but let's try to grow towards mutual understanding. And the only way that that's gonna happen is if you really give to a work your full attention. And that's, that to me is the hardest discipline and the, the, the most difficult one. It's, we, we, have that, uh, we have that kind of 
uh, this rush to judgment in our heads. You know, we want to, we, we don't want to interpret, we want to, uh, we want to be done with interpreting, you know, and, um, and, and I think that, that that sense of being in a kind of an ongoing conversation with the text that requires patient attentiveness is something that applies to scripture. I mean, this is after all the reason why God gives his commandment to the Israelites in, Deut in Deuteronomy, where he doesn't say, read this and, and, and then get the right lesson from it. He says, re reflect on it, meditate on it, speak of it when you go out and when you come in, put it on your uh, forehead and on your doorpost, teach it to your children, be in continual passionate engagement with it. Um, that sort of thing, it, it applies at a sort of a lower level of intensity and of, and of, of consequence to our reading of anything. And so just practicing that kind of patient uh, attentiveness where you're willing to wait and you're willing to forbear um, making your final judgments, um, uh, that, that kind of patience is the, maybe the single most difficult thing to acquire when you're reading, but also I think the most important. That's tremendous. So if we can, uh, for a moment, put a pause on utilitarianism, mm -hmm. a, a kind of what right. can I get from this and right. linger long with a text seeking right. to gain insight from the right. same. Right. We want people to read us charitably yeah. so that we too might read others seriously yep. and charitably. Mm -hmm. This is Absolutely. Uh, so in some ways, uh, the great commandment, uh, mm -hmm. love God, love people, can mm -hmm. uh, coalesce with the golden rule to do unto the other as we would have right. the other do unto us. That's exactly right. You know, love your neighbor as yourself means yep. in part being willing to extend to your neighbor hmm. the same kind of patient attentiveness that you would hope that neighbor would extend to you. So, Alan, I find uh, your Vita absolutely fascinating for so many reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is because of your fascination with the work of W.H. Auden. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, um, I understand that this probably was a part of your doctoral work, perhaps, uh, and that's where you first uh, got the hook set. But mm -hmm. unlike so many, you've not simply uh, left your, uh, the focus of your doctoral work to one side. He's continued to be a partner. Right. What, what is it about his work uh, that has captivated you? Yeah, um, it's, it's, uh, that's a wonderful question. And I, I did actually discover Auden, I mean, I'd read some of his poems, but it was the very last class that I took in graduate school that really got me connected to, to his work. And I think uh, uh, Auden's executor, uh, literary executor Edward Mendelssohn has said that Auden was the first poet to be at home in the 20th century. And uh, that's actually a key thing for me. Somebody like um, you know, C.S. Lewis, for instance, whom I love, I wrote a biography of him and, and I think he's wonderful, but Lewis always described himself as a kind of a dinosaur, you know, as someone who's, whose formation was pre-modern in certain essential ways. And, and Auden was someone who was the most up-to-date uh, au courant poet that you could possibly imagine. Uh, he, his, he became very influential very early. The first recorded use of the phrase, the Auden generation came when Auden was 25 years old. Like they'd, uh, people were already seeing him as the voice of his generation when he was 25. 
And um, the, there's a, a, around the same time, uh, there's a, a movie review that uses the adjective Auden-esque with this sense that everybody would already know what that, what that meant. And, and uh, Auden moved along in this way. He had grown up in a, he'd grown up, his mother was a, a devout uh, Anglo-Catholic Christian. His father was not. Um, went to church with his with his mom. Um, sort of when he was thirteen, um, lost whatever faith that he had and never expected to get it back. But as uh, I think, as his fame grew and as his influence grew, he began to feel increasingly that being the voice of a generation was not a fun thing to be. Uh, people had expectations for you, and he felt that the expectations that everyone else had for him were actually keeping him from thinking. And so he left England, went to the United States, and, and really kind of engaged in a process, living in New York City primarily, engaged in a process of, of remaking his entire intellectual equipment, reading things that he hadn't read, thinking through things that he hadn't thought through. And, and the, the result of that was that he became a Christian and, uh, and affirmed uh, you know, a Christian faith, which he held for the rest of his life. And uh, there's a really funny moment. He was living in a house with seven or eight other people, um, uh, all of whom were remarkable in one way or another. And, uh, and, and one of them was the son of the German novelist, Thomas Mann. And he started noticing that Auden kept disappearing from the house on Sunday mornings, and he couldn't figure out where in the world he was going on Sunday mornings. You know, it was just such a puzzle, you know, and finally his curiosity got too much for him. And he said, where, Whiston, where are you going every Sunday morning? And, and Auden looked at him, he said, I'm going to church. <laughs> and it was the one thing that, that, that Goloman had never guessed. You know, this was not even on his radar that someone might get up on Sunday morning and go to church. But the way that Auden came to faith as someone who had been at home in the 20th century, not someone who was nostalgically longing for some earlier period of Christendom, I think has made him very helpful to me in understanding the modern world and in understanding the world. He, he speaks to certain experiences that are not really part of the, the, the Lewis Tolkien world. And again, I adore those writers, but, but they don't speak to people formed by modernity in quite the way that Auden does. And so I have found him so helpful to me in my thinking over the decades. So if Lewis and the Inklings on the one hand have formed and informed you, Alan, and Auden on the other hand, um, who are some other writers? Who are some other thinkers that you might just flag to say, mm -hmm. boy, they, they've shaped me too. And, yeah. um, uh, and, and maybe uh, take up and read yourselves. Mm -hmm. I think that that the, the single, uh, beyond Auden, the single most influential figure uh, in, in my thinking um, for the last 30 years uh, has, has been the, the Russian uh, polymath and uh, I don't know what you would even call him, uh, a, a philosopher, a philologist, a critic, uh, his name is Mikhail Bakhtin, and Bakhtin is um, known for sort of turning literary criticism into a kind of a philosophy um, um, based on his idea that human consciousness is intrinsically dialogical. Um, uh, he has a wonderful passage where he says that, you know, in some ways the response is, has priority over the word because we don't speak unless we 
anticipate a response. We, we, that to speak is to count on a hearer, count on a listener, count on a respondent. And so if we don't have that respondent there, then we don't talk. And, and, and that sense that our consciousness, our very being is just into, is, is, is dialogical. For Bakhtin, that was, who was a, a Russian Orthodox Christian, that was to him uh, a reflection of, uh, of uh, the Trinitarian nature of God, right? That, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in constant interaction with one another. Uh, uh, that, uh, the word often used for that, though not always accurately, is perichoresis. And uh, um, Auden loved that word also. And so you can, I think maybe you can pick up a theme here in, in almost everything that I'm writing, what I'm looking at is the 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 necessity of healthy dialogue with other human beings and with God for the formation of our identity and all the forces in uh, in our society that really prevent us from having or inhibit us from having those kinds of healthy dialogues that's that's almost everything i write is about that in one way or another that's terrific A alan um uh Drawing upon your, your 2017 work, uh, How to Think, uh, A Survival Guide for a World at Odds, an, an, another theme. Uh, here's polarization. Uh, one way that we can mm -hmm. get past this impasse is to engage mm -hmm. in respectful, meaningful, thoughtful, insightful dialogue. Mm -hmm. How might we learn? We, we've mm -hmm. talked about how we might read well. Uh, yeah. How might we learn to reason uh, well, mm -hmm. and, and and once again, what's the takeaway? If if right. if we think more carefully instead of more um, uh, instead of not, uh, yeah. what impact does this make? Right. So uh, again, this may start to sound like a broken record at a certain point because the, <laughs> the the same themes do come up. In writing this book, this is the one book that I've written in which the greatest influence was Lewis. And, um, and, and really three works of Lewis generate almost everything in, in my book, How to Think, though I only refer to him occasionally. Uh, not three books, but two, two talks and one novel. Um, so one of the talks is the one called The Inner Ring. The second one is a talk that he gave a few years later called Membership. And the third is the novel That Hideous Strength. Uh, because what you see in that hideous strength is the two protagonists, um, Mark Studdock uh, and his wife Jane, is that they are, uh, he's drawn into an inner ring and she's drawn into genuine membership. And, and their, their sort of opposite paths are, I think, the way Lewis portrays that is very powerful and very illuminating. And here's how I believe it's related to thinking. What, one of the things that we that we all see is how especially social media promotes a kind of groupthink. Uh, if you if you are sort of part of a particular world and you on social media say something that deviates from the principles of that world, people will come after you and try to destroy you. Uh, I mean, just the punitive. Uh, destructive nature of it is something that we all see. And one of the things that we're often told is, well, see, what you need to do is to learn to think for yourself. And in one sense you do, but in another sense, not so much, because I think people take that the wrong way. I think people, when they hear, think for yourself, the, when, they, when someone says to them, think for yourself, what they hear is, think by myself. 
Um, and, and, and that's actually, first of all, not possible because of that dialogical nature, the way that we are formed by our relations with others, right? Have you ever noticed how when you have a group of friends, you've done this yourself, I'm sure I do it. You have a friend who has a little particular uh, quirk of speaking and then you realize you've picked it up and you've started to do it or you hear another one of your friends do it, echoing it, you know, that's how, that's how we work. We just, we, we take in all this kind of information. And so thinking by ourselves is not really an option. And so I argue in that book that if you don't wanna be drawn into the inner ring where you're punished for any deviation, then what you need to do is to find people who are trustworthy to think with. And this is what every year I give a talk to people, uh, to students who are prospective um, students in the Honors College here at Baylor. And I tell them, I said, what we want to be for you is we want to be trustworthy companions to think with. We want to be people that you can trust because we are not going to try to make you in our own image. And we're not going to try to punish you for deviating from what we believe. We want to be faithful and charitable interlocutors for you. And if we can be, tr if you can trust us, then, and we have to demonstrate that we have, yeah. you know, trustworthy character, then, then you can really think, then you can grow as a person and as a Christian and uh, in, in all kinds of ways, because if we are trustworthy to think with, then together we can really get somewhere. Alan, that is one of the most helpful phrases that I've ever heard, not uh, to think for ourselves, uh, uh, or, or to, uh, to think for ourselves does not mean thinking by, by ourselves. ourselves. That, that, right. That's absolutely tremendous. I'm also reminded that line of uh, from Claude Levi-Strauss on um, uh, this uh, is good to think with. <laughs> yes, and, exactly. Um, so uh, that that's tremendous. So Alan, um, uh, in addition to Augustine mm -hmm. um, uh, that, that, that you've flagged already in our conversation, mm -hmm. are there some um, other, are there other theologians, uh, whether mm -hmm. um, classical or more mm -hmm. contemporary, Mm -hmm. uh, that have have um, that that you found pleasure, delight reading, uh, read them with profit. Uh, that you might commend to those that have joined us. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to mention three, um, and and these are people who I have just endless reward in reading because. You know, there's we in, in every any any moment, any particular moment that we happen to live in, there are always certain things that uh, um, there we we divide ourselves into camps, and 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 if you say certain things, it in it suggests that you're not in this particular camp, and you are in this other one. It's it is it's related to the inner ring phenomenon, <laughs> and I love theologians who make me realize how artificial some of our distinctions are. So. Uh, I adore uh, Basil the Great. In fact, all of the Cappadocians, I think, are incredible. And one of the things that, the thing that I love, I go to the Cappadocians over and over again, and especially to Basil, because they totally break down our sense that you have to choose between uh, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, that you have to choose between focusing on theological 
accuracy and faithfulness and focusing on social justice. Um, you know, Basil is the guy who he's, he's one of the inventors of the hospital. You know, he's one of the people who created the first hospitals. He's, he, he preaches sermons in which he tells his rich congregants, you know, empty your barns and give, give of your wealth to the poor. And by the way, not just to our fellow Christian, but no, you have to give to the Jews as well. You have to give to the unbelievers. You have to be generous to all of those who are hurting. But then at the same time, he stood up with incredible courage against the Arian heresy, which was dominant in the empire at that time. It never, never once did Basil think, I have to choose between being practically charitable and being theologically rigorous. For him, it's one gospel, Right. And, and, and those things go together. And so I'm always so encouraged when, when I read him. Uh, a second one also from the past, but from the much more recent past is uh, Richard Hooker, the great Anglican theologian. Um, I, I, I think the way that, that Hooker can go from sentence by sentence, from sounding like a sound, thorough Protestant to sounding like a Catholic and then back again is incredibly uh, fascinating to me. And um, I don't think anybody has ever understood justification better than, than Hooker did. His one little piece on justification is just in, incredibly powerful. And the third one is a much more recent figure, and that is the great, uh, it's, it's interesting, we saw in the 20th century a recurrence of something that once was common in the church and then disappeared altogether, and that is the bishop theologian. Uh, in the ancient uh, church, we have all these bishop theologians, and then they disappear. You can be a bishop or a theologian, <laughs> it's not easy to be both, but one great bishop theologian in the 20th century was Leslie Newbigin, um, the uh, who was a bishop in the Church of South India, and was uh, one of the leaders in the in the ecumenical movement in the in the 20th century. But but was profoundly resistant to the idea that you do Christian ecumenism by kind of watering down your theology until you get this kind of lowest common denominator. He wouldn't do that. In fact, when he when he not only upheld the at the time, very controversial idea that, that all ecumenical activity needs to be Christocentric. He ultimately said, actually, even being Christocentric isn't enough. It needs to be Trinitarian. That is, uh, ecumenism needs to be Trinitarian, which is, um, uh, in, in his view, that was not ceasing to be Christocentric. Uh, in, in fact, it's the sort of the full embodiment of being Christocentric. But I love how he, he had this ecumenical spirit, but the ecumenical spirit never allowed him to water down anything. It was, no, we have the full Trinitarian Christology and the full gospel that emerges from that is what we have to preach and teach and live into. And I, I just think his commitment to that is, is just fascinating. And I, I, I read all of Newbigin's books with great profit. I'm very thankful for him. That's rich and tremendous uh, for some of our audience. I know an, another bishop theologian that they are reading with great profit is Tom Wright. Yes. Uh, I would say, uh, can continue to read. Yep. Uh, Alan, uh, you've been so stunningly generous from your, with, with your time, and this has been really rich and in, in, informative as um, uh, someone tries to get a bead on who Alan Jacobs is intellectually, you'll have to think about both um, 
uh, a scholar of literature, <laughs> a scholar of history, uh, a, a philosopher, and a theologian. How, how remarkable that you are a professor of humanities. This is exactly what is shining through like a thousand suns. So I wonder, uh, Alan, if I can kind of have you put your, uh, both your historian uh, hat on and maybe your prophet's hat on in, uh, in, uh, a, a bit. So uh, mindful of your work, the year of our Lord, 1943, which, uh, you know, you, you, you explore, you probe the impact, the import of said year. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if you might be willing to reflect uh, with us for a moment um, what might be written in due course about the years of our Lord, 2019 through mm -hmm. 2021? What, what are we learning? Uh, how will we look back upon this time, or is it simply too early to tell? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously some things are too early to tell, um, but um, but I, I, there are the responses that we are forming right now are going to be crucial for the next few years. I don't think that anybody can doubt that a lot of us over the last few years have kind of lost our heads and have gotten caught up in online disputations, have gotten, um, you know, uh, at, we've gotten out of sorts and out of balance. Um, and, and how we, I, I, I mean, I really do think that people will look back in 20, 30 years, people will look back at this kind of era of social media and will ask, what were they doing? Why did they think this was a good idea? Why did they think that they could behave this way towards one another? I, I really don't think there's any doubt that we're going to be, that our descendants will be appalled at this, right? But, but we're learning, so, you know, the, so what do we learn from that? And I think um, that there's an opportunity here for Christians to learn a lot about what it means to be in the world, but not of it. Um, and, and the question is whether we're going to take that opportunity. Um, and, uh, and I, I, my model as I've been trying to step back and I've been trying to do more, um, reflection on this. And I, uh, there's a particular word that has been in my mind a lot and it's, it's from, um, the greatest living, um, computer scientist. He's a man named Donald Knuth. He teaches at, um, uh, or he's retired from Stanford. Um, he's also, by the way, a very serious Lutheran Christian who has taught Sunday school for many decades in his Luther Lutheran church. Um, but uh, Knuth, back in the 70s, he stopped using email. It was at a time before most people uh, had email at all, and he stopped using email. And so if you want to get in touch with Donald Knuth, you have to write a letter and put it in the, the mailbox. Um, and, um, and, and when asked why he did that, he said something really interesting. He said, um, email is an incredible tool for people who need to stay on top of things. He said, but my job is to get to the bottom of things. Mm. Um, and I think about that every day. And I think there are a lot of us who need to think of our jobs that way. We need to think of our calling as getting to the bottom of things. And frankly, I think that's true for pastors just as much as it is of scholars, that, that we can sometimes be so 
obsessed with staying on top of things that we forget what it even looks like to get to the bottom of things. And uh, if we learn that lesson, if we emerge from this having learned that lesson, then this period of upheaval and turmoil and hostility will ultimately bear fruit. Uh, but if we don't learn those lessons, then uh, we won't bear much fruit at all. And uh, I, I think this is a really pivotal time for the church and for faithful Christians everywhere. Uh, can we learn to worry a little less about staying on top of things and worry a lot more about how to get to the bottom of things? Well, maybe we have uh, the, uh, the next title for Dr. Jacob's next book, The Bottom of Things. Uh, <laughs> there are worse titles. I know publishers get to choose these kinds of things. But, uh, uh, but Alan, that, that is um, so remarkably insightful. And, and I, would, I would also say hopeful. It reminds me of that family mm -hmm. circus cartoon when PJ is saying his evening prayers and he says, deliver us from email. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've prayed that prayer before. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think that some of us uh, have been consigned uh, to uh, being on top of things, but I pray that there are many, many more uh, like you uh, who will help us get to the bottom of things. Alan, this has been an utter joy and delight. Uh, thank you for your time. And uh, I look forward to uh, maybe, uh, is there a day in the not too distant future when we might be able to get together in person with a cup of coffee? That sounds absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Let's, let's, uh, let's do it in eschatological hope, right? <laughs> Before the Lord comes. Yeah. Proleptically, we're going to lean into that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so grateful, Alan. Uh, have a great rest of the day. Thanks you all for tuning in. See you next time on Todd Talks when our guest will be Richard Hayes uh, as we explore some uh, matters pertaining to New Testament uh, interpretation and uh, how we might uh, do such in service of the church. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, particularly, thank you, Alan. Thank you. All right. Bye, you all.